I help you? My son. Hey, this is your father. I made a mistake. I am. Welcome to the Sub Pop Cult Podcast. I'm your host, Michael McGruther. Today, the Sub Pop Cult Podcast returns to its mission at hand, which is the promotion of independent artists, particularly people who make film, television, write novels, culture-creating work, or also culture-reflecting work, because ultimately what's missing from the American landscape of entertainment and choices that we have are shows that do not really tell the truth about our circumstances as Americans. Everything is blown out of proportion. Everything is made to be as extreme as possible. And all that you lose is the most important ingredient, which is a little bit of nuance, a little bit of a slower pace, and a true representation of how people go through their lives in the free nation that is the United States of America. My guest today is a very interesting individual. He lives in Santa Monica, California. He's a writer, director, acting coach. He knows his stuff. His name is John Lacey, and he joins me, and we talk for a little bit over an hour about his new film, which is called Rosebud Lane. Now, Rosebud Lane is a fascinating film, and it's a film that I really hope you will see. It's going to be on Amazon very soon, so you'll be able to find it there. But you should absolutely find and support this film for the magnificent achievement that it is, which is, for a little over $100,000, an unbelievably robust and well-put-together feature film with a full story and a full cast and lots of shots and locations and all the things that you would expect from a major feature film that somebody spends millions and millions of dollars making. It just proves that the tools exist. The potential is there. The ability is there. And I always preach the same thing to indie artists, and I don't hesitate with a guy like John who knows what he's doing and has been around for a while. We have to find a way to scale back the monetization so that these these, uh, independent films can be profitable, make their money back, But you're not competing with, you know, trying to make 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 70, 80 million dollars. Instead, just a few million dollars here, a few million dollars there, uh, replicated by tens of thousands of people over time, will totally change the culture. And Rosebud Lane is one of those movies that qualifies as a culture-changing film. So sit back 
and enjoy this conversation I have with a fascinating individual, Mr. John Lacey. Well, John Lacey, welcome to the Sub Pop Call Podcast. How are you I'm today? I'm very, very good. Thank you, Mike, for having me. This is fun. So we met through a, a mutual friend uh, who I've had on this podcast before, a great guy, Michael Broderick. He told me about your film, and I was immediately interested in it because he knows that I'm interested in promoting independent-minded artists that tell great stories that don't rely on special effects and you know that bring us back down into that storytelling that really created the best cinema in the 60s yeah. and the 70s. And, and so he said, you know, check out my buddy's movie, Rosebud Lane. And uh, it's really cool. I got to hook you guys up. And we got the text messages. And then, and then I got that link to your movie. And I, I really thank you for letting me see it before it even comes out. Uh, and I was really damn pleased and happy with the movie that I saw. I was like, this is exactly what needs to happen. You have a big location uh, of a town where a lot of things happen. And just on the technical side, I'm just going to dive right into your filmmaking side. I knew I was watching a great movie as soon as the opening scene built and built and built and the tea kettle started to go off at the exact moment that the, the climax between the two characters understanding the significance of the setup. And if you don't mind, I'm going to tell the audience it's about a Hollywood guy who finds out he has a son from about 10 years ago and he's going over the letter he got uh, from the kid asking him if they can meet. That's correct. And I just, and I just thought that was... It took you just a few min- a few minutes. Great scene, a lot of gravitas, but that marrying of the steam and the steam inside the character's head was just so well done. Thank you. So congratulations. Appreciate that. Uh, yeah, it's it's an effective setup, and, and uh, it's really rewarding to hear you say that, Mike, because when we're cutting uh, the film, uh, you, you know from being in that editing room and going spending so much time with the picture in post and, and can, being concerned with showing it to your first kind of test audiences. You're looking to tighten things up and you're looking to make things move as quickly as possible so that you can hook the audience quickly. And, and I kept going back to that scene and saying, are people going to sit down with this couple immediately before they even really know who they are or what the context is of the world we're in? And are they going to sit down and listen to five pages of, of really hopefully efficient exposition but I kept thinking, uh, wow, how can I how can I make this a little bit more dynamic? Am I missing something here? Am I am I really biting off more than I can chew in terms of asking the audience to sit still for it? And the final analysis, it has to be there. It is an effective setup, and I think it does uh, it does um, do it promptly enough with enough of a, of a succinct word count uh, that it doesn't uh, kind of crash the car, as I like to say. Um, so I appreciate you saying that because it's it's five pages of dialogue uh, right out of the gate, and um, the actors obviously um, delivered, and the fact that you uh, acknowledge the the steam pot, uh, beautiful, well done. Well, the actors delivered, and you really you did a great job casting the Tarantino actress. I'm forgetting her first Lucia. name. Um, Lucia was such a nice contrast to uh, her husband, and. She really embodied, in my opinion, uh, California and just that that uh, airiness about her, that openness to explore every option and ultimately do the right thing. So she just seemed to be uh, California personified. And I thought that was a really nice touch as well. So anytime you did the back and forth between the worlds, um, it was clear that there was a totally different existence happening. So before we get ahead of it. 
I just want to tell the audience listening, the basic premise of this movie is a guy who lives in L.A. and he's in the film business and he's got a wife and they're successful and they have no children. And he gets a letter one day and he does have a child. And the child he had through an affair. But it wasn't an affair where there was a woman that was hunting him down and taking him from his wife. It happened in the past in a town. And now there's this letter that arrives and it's from his son. And the son says, I want to meet you. But the part that he doesn't know yet is that his son is also a huge movie yeah. buff. And so that kicks off our story. And you take a guy, and this is what I truly loved about what you presented here, is you take a guy from Hollywood and you put him in small-town America. The two places couldn't be further apart uh, culturally and the way things run and the way people are. And so your next huge win, in my opinion, is when you draw us with all this with all this, uh, you know, curiosity about what's going to happen and who the mother is that he's going to have to see again to, to say, I'm here to see the kid and all that stuff. And you left us with something totally surprising, a very strong-minded individual, I take care of myself woman, I don't need your help. And to me, I just want to say congratulations again. That was fascinating and well done. And the smallness of the film gets gigantic in those moments. And that, to me, my friend, is real filmmaking. Oh, man, that's music to my ears, Mike. I appreciate that. And uh, I wrote the picture for, for Tyne, who plays the, the, the mother in the small town, the character named Ginny. She's, a great, she's yep. a great friend of mine. She's been in my acting studio for eight years now, and we've been working together. So the, it was the, the, the character and the, and the script and the film were put together around her strengths, and I think we really capitalized on them. And I think uh, by the time the audience, I know by the time the audience meets her, which is, I think, 17 minutes in, uh, it, she's worth the wait. And, uh, and I just think she's just fantastic, and she gives a great performance. I hope people get a chance to see how great Tyne Steckline is in this role. Well, it looks like she could have a really great career going off of parts like this, and she's just building yeah. it. And you gave her you gave her a great showcase. I've seen I've seen her before in uh, Michael Broderick's yeah, film, as a matter of exactly. fact. Uh, so there's really great there's great talent, and we're just in this era now where celebrity doesn't matter, um, execution, and being good at what you do is going to matter more, especially the further we go into the new kind of fragmented culture that we all live in. So. Let's talk about something else okay. um, that has to do with your film. So this podcast is about the culture. And the culture, I feel, is uh, suffering from balkanization of the American audience into all these different groups that were then pitted against one another. And uh, it's just to keep us paying attention to the media's distractions. But in that broken up culture, people crave simple storytelling, not simple in that it's uh, um, not complex, simple in that it doesn't rely on special effects, it doesn't rely on trickery to tell you a story about human beings that are relatable. And so you did that, and you did it at a cost, um, if you're willing to share it, because I think it's relevant. I mean, I had a guy on here before you who was making movies for $1,000 each, not of the caliber of what you're doing, but he's he's really putting out a lot of films at, at that low level, but you put out what is, in my opinion, equivalent to a studio film 
from like the 1970s and you did it for how much? Can you tell about us? About 110,000 now with, with post still, I'm still writing some checks. So we're at to, at about 110. That is an unbelievable number for what you came yeah. up with. That's unbelievable. So my question is, did you sneak any shots? Oh. Did you like cheat? Did you like say, all right, you guys are going to walk across the street. We don't have a permit. We're just going to nail this oh, right yeah. here. And, and it's, as you can imagine, much easier to do it in a, in a small town. And in the, the, the small town in particular was Hendersonville, North Carolina. Uh, they rolled out the red carpet for us in many ways because I was there for several months for pre-production and developing uh, much of the story and location scouting, obviously. Uh, so they rolled out the red carpet when we needed it. To be done, we had a North Carolina producer who paved the way for us because she'd made a handful of films in, in Hendersonville and nearby Asheville and Brevard, where we shot a lot of scenes in Brevard, North Carolina. So we did have a lot of permits and a lot of um, um, uh, written understandings of where we we're going to be. Having said that, yeah, we we had to still guerrilla some stuff, um, and if, you know, you just don't have the the fear or paranoia that there's going to be some you know, Pasadena neighbor walking along that's irritated by your film trucks or someone who's going to uh, suddenly uh, be hip to the fact that there's a, a small film crew making making a film and, and make a phone call on you. So we didn't have that. The most, uh, I'll just, I'll leave you with this uh, because you, you've seen the film and you'll remember the moment towards the end of the film, the young actors are sitting on the top of the staircase saying goodbye to each other. You, can you remember the image? Yeah, I do. And yes. it was it was when I that was right next to my that home was right next to my mother's house in Hendersonville, a uh, home that she just sold, unfortunately. Um, but uh, right next to that. And every time I drove by that house, Mike, I said that scene has to take place there. It, it reminded me so much of Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master in the Joaquin Scenic's flashback scenes with the girl before he joins the Navy. And it just had the, it had the color palette of the, 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 the cobalt blue planters at the top of yeah. the stairs. And every time I drove by, it seemed to be an overcast day. And it reminded me so much of the visual aesthetic of the master. And I'm just an enormous Paul Thomas Anderson fan. So I was dead set on shooting the scene there. They also had the, the wraparound porch where I knew I could position the young actress and she could say her goodbye to him as he's walking down and I could have that great, you know, her looking down, him looking up, final sweet moment between two 11-year-olds saying that they're going to miss each other. Um, so yeah. I, I had my heart set on that. I went by that house several times and knocked on the door to try to meet the owner to get permission. Every time I struck out to the point where I finally just uh, made the uh, judgment that they were out of town. Things that were on the porch, nothing ever moved. It was a, clearly a lived-in house, but nothing ever moved. So I thought, well, no, no one's been here in a while. They're out of town. I have no phone number. I have no way to reach these people. So when it comes time to our shooting schedule, I'm just going to go by. I, I have the shot list very specific. I know exactly how many shots we need to get the scene the way I visualized it. And we just went by and did it. But the funny thing was I'm doing it with two 11-year-olds, and their parents are kind of standing across the street in a you know, YMCA parking lot, and I've got my skeleton film crew i've got my dp uh, obviously my sound guy focus puller and one other person with me and i'm having these children sit you know, trespass onto this house property sitting on not only sitting at the top of their stairs and doing a scene i position them perfectly so that the ring camera that was on the porch couldn't see them by the way i kind of saw that they had their surveillance set up 
they were positioned right where they couldn't be visible on the ring camera. But then, then I went one step further, though, Mike, and had the young girl who'd never acted in anything in her life. I had her go up onto their porch and walk around the wraparound porch and do dialogue up there with the sound guy in their yard booming up to her and uh we had to do it very fast and the kids were the kids were fearless and we knocked it out and i and i love the scene it's exactly as i visualized it from the moment i saw it uh, it's got the perfect color palette and aesthetic that i aimed for but that's one example of something that we really had to just roll the dice and say all right i've knocked on their door enough uh we're going for it and we pulled it off I would have just had a backup publisher's clearinghouse envelope just in case. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you'd make a great producer. I don't know why no one thought of that. <laughs> Get props department ready. Yeah, that's um, great. So, do you know that Michael Imperioli made an entire movie driving around Philadelphia in a van with a camera crew and some actors and just hopping out at random locations and doing scenes? No, was that uh, what, what stage in his career? I love him. Uh, very recently, oh. because I actually used it. I usually I used it as an example, and I, I never really followed up. But I remember sending the article around to an investor, saying like these worlds of like truly independent filmmaking and high quality results are merging, and and just what you talked about, which a lot of people who don't live in sh in show business world don't realize that it, you know everybody in Hollywood, Los Angeles, Pasadena, uh, they're hip to what money is being spent and what's going on, and they'll find ways to make your life miserable because they're all haters yeah. and so so you don't have that where you went and people are, are excited they're like wow you're putting on a, a movie we want to help you make that great and tell a great story especially about with our town as the backdrop yeah. so that 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 welcoming of you guys as filmmakers is significant to your success but that merging of the guerrilla filmmaker with with that reality that uh you can have a high quality result at the end is uh, that seems to be the space you are operating in. That, to me, is like when a director is a painter. You looked at that house, and you needed to go and, and work on that painting a little bit, and it drew you in, and then you got to paint it with your brush, which is arrangement, yeah. arranging all the scenes the right way. So you're, you're a very good director. You have a really good style and a good eye. I appreciate eye. that, and uh, that, that's uh, very meaningful for me to hear because I... You know, we spend a lot of time doubting ourselves when we're, when we're in the editing room or when we're, you know, feeling like we've got our hat in hand, looking to get someone interested in helping, helping make the next project. So I, I really do appreciate that. That's that's very significant to hear. I hired a great, uh, we hired a great cinematographer out of Asheville. His name is David Fashuk, uh, F-E-S-I-U-K. He's Ukrainian. Uh, just a really, really talented young young guy who works with his brother and a sound guy and his wife, Sarah. And between Yuri and David and, and their sound guy, Craig, we, we just had this skeleton crew that we, that we hired from Asheville. And I knew from looking at David's stuff, uh, he hadn't done much, but he did a couple of short films and shot a bunch of weddings and stuff as, a, as just a kind of an up-and-coming cinematographer in Asheville, North Carolina. But I knew once I saw his images... Uh, it was really going to work. The funny thing was, Mike, and you'll appreciate this because I had, uh, you know, three different cinematographers that I that I interviewed that were local to the region, right? That I could hire that that that, that would work with my budget and and lived in and around Asheville, North Carolina. And of the three, David had the least um, knowledge, vocabulary, library of cinema, 
And that was one of my big priorities. So my criteria of interviewing with someone was I needed someone who could speak the same language. Like I have a feeling you and I could talk Hal Ashby, Cassavetes, uh, you know, Bob Rafelson and uh, Roman Polanski. And we could start just going through all the filmmakers from the 60s and 70s and we'd know exactly what we're talking about. David does none of that. He has no film vocabulary at all. Uh, and he admits it, and, and he admitted it openly when we first started talking, that I, I wanted to be able to send him a lot of, or just reference a lot of films that we could use as, as either homage or, or influences for Rosebud Lane. And it was deaf ears. He just didn't really have an understanding of what I was talking about. So I had to send him visuals and screen grabs of things. Um, so the irony of the story was where, where I thought going into the interviewing process, it was the, really the t one of the top of my criteria was to find a DP that I could have a shorthand with. He had the least shorthand, uh, but the most talent. And that ended up, that ended up okay, winning so, the day. All right. So that, that reminds me of a saying that I heard, and I say it a lot in my podcast, just to remind people about how the business operates. Uh, the way to learn how to do things uh, to innovate in show business in particular, is to watch somebody who does not know what they're mm -hmm. doing. That's that's a well-known tactic in yep. our industry. Watch the new guy who doesn't know what he's doing, and then because he doesn't know what he's doing, he innovates. Then you take his innovation and you run with it, and he doesn't even know what the hell <coughs> happened. Believe me, that's, hap yeah. that's happened to me I before. So that's, uh, that's how it goes. Um, but the cinematography part, your DP had the highest amount of talent, but the talent that you just saw in him, least amount of, of knowledge that you could tap that was the same as your own. Correct. Um, how important is it to, for you to be able to tell somebody to look at a very specific scene and, and expect them to recreate its feeling or its look? Um, I, what, what I'm like, what's, what's, what's your way of approaching a DP who doesn't know anything yeah. like that? Is it just like, I want it to look this way or I want it to feel this way. Uh, feel is a hard thing to communicate because it's utterly subjective. And I can say it feels this way to me and someone may nod and go, oh, yeah, it feels this way to me. It feels gloomy. It feels depressing. There, 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 there was a, a, a reference to Bergman's Winter Lights in, that used to be in Rosebud Lane that I pulled it out. It just felt too obscure, but it was... It was uh, uh, Sydney's uh, the, the, the protagonist's description of the small town that he was in to his wife back home uh, when she said what's it like and he said do you, do you remember Bergman's Winter Lights and I thought oh, you know, no, one, no, one, no one's going to get that reference so I'm going to cut it my point of that was when you watch Bergman films I think that's a kind of a universal feeling you get other than, you know, other than Fanny and Alexander everything has got really a, a, a somber kind of tone to it I would submit to you, though, that he, that he, more than location, more than any filters, more than any camera technique that he used, it's in his storytelling and in his writing. Ultimately, that's the feeling. So you can do, you can try to do it with an aesthetic, like the aesthetic of Hoosiers is, is really wonderful. And, and I loved the look of Hoosiers for uh, Rosebud Lane, similar region, similar uh, seasonal feel I wanted to have, kind of fall, yes. coming out of fall into winter, so it's not that romantic golden brown hue of fall. It's got a little bit of the, right, do you follow that? But who, yes, but who's your, reason, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, the reason I was asking you if you communicated in feelings with him mm -hmm. uh, is because he's a cinematographer. yeah. yeah. A cinematographer is really painting a moody picture to create a feeling in the audience that you desire. So with a guy who didn't have your language, mm -hmm. 
Uh, and by the way, my, my favorite Hal Ashby film, without a doubt, is The Last Detail. We'll talk about that later. One of Nicholson's great um, performances that, that just uh, goes under the radar for most people. Nicholson and, and, and Randy Quaid, uh, yeah, it's, it's so good. It's so amazingly yeah. good. But you're that kind of filmmaker, and that's why I like talking yeah. to you. Um, so tell me, elaborate. You're dealing with a guy who doesn't know anything. You can't reference mm-hmm. stuff. You're going for a mood, ultimately. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you talk to a guy like that? Yes. So uh, the first the, the, the big decision we made was the camera that we chose, and we chose a Z cam, um, which is not a very commonly used camera um, for for digital. Uh, we chose it mostly in large part because uh, we had a couple of older actors in our cast. For instance, uh, Tess Harper was not going to stand up really well to to really really great, and uh, you know this doesn't sound like a compliment at all, but it's just for any actor, especially actresses. Aging is uh, high def can be very unforgiving. So we chose a Z cam and a look and uh, a, a color palette and a softening to, to, to give things a depth and a, and a softer vibe. And I think it, and, and we went kind of towards a darker palette, like a winter palette, rather than something that would be uh, bright and sunny like California. And then of course, the California scenes that we shot, it was raining. So we ended up, uh, we didn't have bright, sunny California as a contrast to North Carolina, but I think we did ultimately capture a good kind of gloomy, heading into winter vibe in North Carolina in our locations, in the camera that we chose, in the way David lit it, which was very minimal, very minimal lighting. I mean, you'd be shocked, Mike, at what their camera lighting package consisted of. I mean, it's things that you could buy at, at Target. They didn't. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that's yeah. why I think out of the box, I think that's an important, an important detail to pause on for a second is just, you know, the tools exist. It's the know-how and the knowledge and the skill and the craftsmanship that must be developed. Absolutely. And so the tools are there and you proved it spectacularly with what you did. I mean, Pieces of April was made for a half a million dollars and that was a big deal. In the, in the late yeah. 90s. I don't know if you I remember. Do. They're like, they made this movie. I remember. Yeah, and that was a real big real big deal. And that half a million dollars went on to make, you know, a couple 10 million, I believe, uh, in box office because of all the advertising money and all this stuff that we don't need to go yeah. into that forces an audience somewhere where they've already made something for dirt yeah. cheap. Um, but 100000 for an entire feature film set in a small town with great performances, a good script, good music, compelling drama, multiple locations is, I mean, that's a major feat. And I'd like to know if you can replicate it. Uh, well, I've done two. My first film, Custody, which became Custody Road. I always refer to it as, as Custody. We, we had to change the title uh, when we released it because of a, a Viola Davis film that came out the same year. So Custody was made for just about $100,000 also. It didn't do well in the marketplace, unfortunately. It uh, uh, didn't do well in festivals either. I, looking back on it, it was I didn't create sympathetic characters. It was, it was a story about two people that kind of crashed into each other and had a baby and shouldn't have, and it's a custody battle between two kind of unsympathetic characters, and I, I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't picking sides, so I made them both bad parents. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah, well, yeah. I, don't, I don't 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 get too hard yeah. on yourself because audiences need to understand yeah. uh, the the anything can be made profitable with enough advertising dollars yeah. behind yeah. it. When you're an artist like yourself who's doing whatever you can to make a great movie, 
um, you do have to hit a home run because you're not going to get $20 million to spend telling people to go see your movie. Yeah. And if you, and if and you, so and if you want autonomy, of course, which of course almost any filmmaker worth, worth his or her salt is going to want autonomy, right? A singular vision is what we ultimately gravitate to. The filmmakers that we probably could agree on, while they surely had great collaborators and maybe even great um, writing partners, ultimately the film was a singular vision, whether it was Altman, um, uh, you know, clearly Hal Ashby had a single, I mean, I'm a huge Sam Peckinpah fan. No one told Sam Peckinpah what to do. He made his films. Um, so if you want to... It, I, think, I think Frank Capra's the best yeah. director that's yeah. ever lived. Um, and I also think Walter Hill is... I mean, we're talking guys who had a strong command of story, like yourself, but also they operated at a time when the movie business was interested in making these human stories yeah. without the necessary additional fluff politics perversions to draw to draw an audience yeah. so so that they they really they lucked out as far as the time that they lived yeah in. Uh, well yeah the capriot era was was very interesting there's a there's a really great documentary called five came back uh, about the five filmmakers that were enlisted by the military during world war ii to make propaganda films for the military and it's a spectacular yep. documentary, but yeah, I'm also a huge Frank Capra fan. He was a giant for sure. Um, but having having the autonomy ultimately, Mike, can I, you said can, you asked the question uh, uh, very poignant. Can I do it again? I've done it twice. I'm not going to do it again. Uh, that's not to say I couldn't. What I what I what I just can't do again is do all of the post production work that's required. For instance, a post production supervisor is just a huge piece of the filmmaking equation and if that if that if the filmmaker becomes the person wearing that hat it really uh, drains a lot of the fun out of the process because so much of the post work is tedious it's getting people to communicate efficiently it's making sure different department heads are talking to each other now when you're setting up the film that's all very romantic and exciting because you have something to look forward to i love talking to the art department about what we're going to do with the space yeah, i love yeah. talking to wardrobe and getting their contributions i've got some great wardrobe stories on this film if you're interested just little things that are kind of good trivia about the picture that to me are significant but in post-production man making sure that people have the right formats that they're talking to each other and the right technical issues oh man it's not my forte and i've had to do it on two films in a row and i will not do it again so uh the next film i've got uh, which is is well underway in development the script is written we're putting together a lookbook now looking for investors looking for like a million two million five so yeah, hope, hoping. Uh, what's your next? What's the next picture about? Oh, I mean, is it a departure? It is a departure, uh, and 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 I hope. Yeah, I know you you'll be able to appreciate this. Rosebud Lane was very much a celebration of my love of movies. It's my own cinema paradiso. It's it's you know I love film, and here we have a father son connecting with a shared love of cinema, and I thought, wow, what a great love letter to Hollywood, and it's also a testament to single moms. Yeah, go ahead. Wait, hold up. Hold up. I love Cinema Paradiso, and I didn't make that connection until now, but you're right. Yeah. You do have a lot of parallels. Yeah. Now I see, your, I see your movie totally differently all of a sudden. Wow. My, my, uh, our, our distribution rep was the first to draw that comparison when he saw it. I've got a, guy, a great guy named Sebastian Twardock with Savant Artists, and he decided to take us on and hold our hand through festivals and distribution. He's been instrumental in a lot of what's happened with the film, and he was the first person in his rave review of the film. He, he loved it as much as, as you do, apparently. And uh, Wow, wait, you, yeah. really, you really did do it. You really pulled it off. You know why? I, I don't know who knows 
Cinema Paradiso that's listening to this, but uh, it's one of the great Italian films about a boy named Toto who's uh, raised by a camera operator, essentially. Fredo, and he shows him everything about films, and he learns about life. And and uh, but his film, that film, like yours, starts with the uh, protagonist is already a successful filmmaker, but something is cold and missing about his life. Yeah. In both cases, yeah. so damn, I didn't even yeah. notice that before. Well, you're gonna love that because I've just I have started writing the scene. We we did Q and A panels, a handful of them, uh, Mike, a couple in in North Carolina. Uh, where we had screenings for people that participate in the film and all the locals. So we've done a couple of Q&A panels, and the most commonly asked question, you know what it was? And it wasn't asked a dozen times, but it was asked three times, and it was the only question that was asked multiple times, is there going to be a sequel? I never thought about it. It never even dawned on me that, that, uh, that, there, that there could be one, would be one, was necessary. But the fact that uh, three different audience members in different panels were curious about a sequel did get my brain working, and I just recently started writing it, and it and, and it is a direct ripoff of the beginning of Cinema Paradiso, where it starts with the breeze throwing through, blowing through the, the, the curtains and the phone ringing, and the protagonist in bed, and then someone else picking up the phone, and we learn that his mother passed away. So we're gonna what we're gonna do is well, it's no rip yeah. off. There's no yeah. there's no there's no ripping off. There's what C.S. Lewis yeah. said: uh, the way to be original is to not be original, but to take what already works and make it yeah. your own. And so we are supposed to share off of one another and get inspired yeah. from one another. But if you suck at it, it looks exactly like what you're copying. Yeah. Um, if you're skilled, the more skilled you are, the less you can realize that Soul Food is a remake of Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. And and Star yeah. and Star Wars is uh, is uh, really it's Wizard. Of of Oz meets Hidden Fortress. I mean, it's so everything does have that. Everything does have that uh, derivative. It is absolutely, yeah. and there's no shame in that whatsoever. Yeah, so, yeah I, I said, yeah, I did. I say rip off. I should. I'm lifting from. I'm homaging. I'm. I'm. Uh, you say I'm inspired. There you by. go. Even better. Thank you. So you're inspired. But I yeah. will. I will. Uh, I will give you my. Um, I just want to, and you're not asking. But man, that sequel. I'm telling you. That kid better go to Hollywood yeah. and have his life ruined by the friends that he circles around with and his dad has to save him from the bullshit. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about the, the new film then that, that is not Rosebud Lane. Uh, um, you got to turn him into River Phoenix. You've got to turn him into River uh, Phoenix. Man, I worked with River. He was great. River River was uh, he was spectacular. I think about him all the Good time. Good people. Yeah, he was, he was the James Dean of our, of our era for sure. Um, so, no doubt about so it. the new the new film that that I'm that I'm moving uh, steadily forward with, uh, as much as Rosebud Lane was my love of cinema, and it's very clearly uh, a, a big part of the film, right? Well, what do we what do we not love about it? I mean, we, you you could probably come up with half a dozen things off the top of your head that you hate about Hollywood. I do too. There's but there's a couple things that I've always felt a lot of shame that this is how I make my living. Uh, and things that, that make me angry, and it's the predator. Uh, it's the it's it's the Harvey Weinstein's, and and more specifically, it's how child actors have been treated in the past. Whether it's uh, you know the, from the Showbiz Kids uh, documentary on HBO talking about Corey Feldman and and uh, you know Drew Barrymore and Mila Jovovich, um, these kids that they were entrusted to Hollywood uh, uh, to make. Uh, 
films and tell stories, and then we're abused, we're, we're mishandled, we're exposed to lifestyles they shouldn't have exposed. Bottom line, their innocence was stolen, and I think the industry's got a lot of blood on its hands in that regard, and that bothers me, and it makes me feel uh, somewhat... Uh, um, uh, ashamed, ashamed is the wrong word. Um, it, it, it gives me pause that this is how I've made my living in an industry that is so reckless and is so um, uh, toxic in so many ways, and, it, and that's bothered me. So my next film is called Cocaine and Carrot Juice, and it's really, it's, it's um, sun, the setup is Sunset Boulevard, but instead of an aging, uh, silent, uh, silent screen uh, diva Norma Desmond holed up in her mansion, it's an aging Nickelodeon star who's 35, and she was on an, uh, a Disney show or a Nickelodeon show, a ubiquitous one of those kids' shows when she was 12, and now she's a basket case living a semi-agoraphobic life in the Hollywood Hills with her curtains drawn, scripts packed up everywhere, stuff cluttered, schizophrenic, going in and out of characters. Yeah, This is too yeah. good. Don't give this yeah. away on yeah. here. So in the, this is yeah. good. Really so inst instead of an, instead of a down and out screenwriter stumbling upon the mansion like William Holden does in in Sunset Boulevard, it's an Uber Eats driver that gets caught up in her lair and delivers food to her multiple times, and she's not supposed to be even have a cell phone, let alone having food delivered to her. And we find out why she's still being oppressed. She's still under held under the thumb of the producer, the the Jeffrey Epstein, Jelaine Maxwell kind of pair of people that are still dominating her life and keeping her fearful of the outside and dangling. A, a star script in front of her that she's going to make a comeback, and she's a she's a basket case. She's a mess, and this Uber Eats kid breaks her out of her her prison. And it's very dramatic. It's dark. It's funny, um, but it's my way of saying, uh, you know, take your hands off the kids and let's 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 rescue them and help them reclaim their their themselves. If they can't reclaim their innocence, they can at least get back in touch with who they once were. Well, I I have direct experience with this world you know i worked with joel schumacher he wasn't really a bad guy as far as uh anything that i saw personally but after i worked with him i immediately sold a picture to universal pictures with brian singer i i, I know a little with, bit about that you know, okay yeah. so <laughs> you know i know all about this uh abusive culture that exists and i do sometimes wonder if all my success uh, was basically because all these gay guys wanted to bang me. Yeah. yeah. Like, you sometimes you wonder, like, wow, man, did the door open just for that? Because yeah. it feels that way sometimes. Uh, it doesn't matter how good you do the work. There's a lot of people out there. I, what I tell people is, you know, all the most talented folks are outside the business um, in this current iteration that we're in because it's been so well uh, gamed and closed off so that it's literally just kind of like who they are going to pick as a star is like the masturbation toy that's a living being. You know, when I first met Colin Farrell, he went around and did a tour of all the gay directors. Like, he went to the set of X-Men. He, You know, they, these guys, uh, they have a, a, a culture, a predatory, a predatory culture, um, but it's, with the children, it's, it's despicable beyond belief. But in the uh, in the gay side, it's just that they still haven't been held to account like straight guys where, you know, like if you have a relationship with someone who's too young and you're a straight guy and it's a girl, there's a law against that. But that doesn't exist on the other side. So these guys, they just get away with everything, harass young people and, you know, find kids that are broken and want to be stars. I know that world completely, but I do believe 
and this is extremely relevant, that the remedy is people like you making $100,000 films in small towns. Yeah, thank you, man. And starting careers in what is basically theater, but on film. Yeah. And so that's, like, to me, that's, you made a feature film, it exists, it's a film, it is that medium, but that's regional theater. Yeah. That is far from Hollywood. Nobody gets molested. Nobody gets robbed. Nobody's like trying to shut you down because they think they can direct it better than you. Like you're not surrounded by those people. And so to me, that is the remedy. So don't don't look past what you're doing by making these little small projects. If you could finance them and make them, that experience that young kid had on your movie was a good experience. And so the more of those you can create, the more you fix the problem. Well, and, so I'm, and I'm so glad you, you uh, brought that up, Mike, because that was a big part of it. Was I, you know, I worked with a, with a couple of children on Rosebud Lane, and I was you know, frequently checking in with just the, the, the work environment and the climate and saying, you know, this is, we may have worked longer hours than we, we needed to a couple of times, but we were using SAG actors and playing under SAG rules for the most part. But I just kept thinking, man, their parents have really trusted them to me to make this a positive experience. Uh, they've never done anything like this before, and this is, we're, we're the circus coming to town, and we are, even though we're, we're an independent film, very much so, we still had a certain aspect of Hollywood. You know, we had makeup, and we were, because yeah, I know you guys on Tigerland, you guys didn't have any bells and whistles. You guys did no makeup, nope. nothing. You guys went almost like dogma. Which was, yeah. which is awesome. We we still had the little you know little tents, and of course because of COVID, we had all these other precautionary things we do. My point was, it was still had the chaos of the circus for these kids, and it's an interesting, peculiar, bizarre kind of life to suddenly be thrust into for a couple of weeks of concentrated time. And I just know that we gave them a very positive experience. That everyone was bending over backwards to make sure that they were comfortable, and that their parents had direct access to and, and visual lines on what we were doing at all times. There was nothing at all um, uh, clandestine or nefarious going on. And I just can't help but uh, just feel sad for uh, both the parents that were that have been uh, complicit in all of this over the decades, all the way back to, you know, Jackie Coogan, was that his name, the little boy that started the first really championing ch- child actors. Uh, but I'm sure Mickey yeah. Rourke and Judy Garland have, have, you know, they had horror stories. And it's a. Oh, I'm sure there's yeah. everybody. I have a book. I have a book that I keep on my shelf down yeah. in my office called uh, My Wicked, Wicked Ways by. Um, uh, you must know it. It's by Laurence Olivier. No. Yeah, Laurence yeah. Olivier, My, my Wicked, Wicked I don't Ways. Know and. It. He, oh, you check it out. Well, let me make sure I'm yeah. using the right yeah. movie star's yeah. name. Um, because I used to uh, pick up this book and reference it quite a bit. Um, because there's a scene in there where the police come and visit him. And uh, he's he's like, I didn't do anything. But he actually did have sex with an underage girl and he just didn't know it. Mm. Um, it's Errol Flynn. Ah, there you go. My Wicked Wicked Way is Errol Flynn. You're definitely going to want to check it yeah, out. Um, but if you pick... If you pick up that book and read it, it's all stories from that era that are identical, to, that nothing has changed. Yeah. So ultimately, the business of seeking fame instead of the business of let's make a great story yeah. is what enables the abuse. Absolutely. It's, it is the carrot that's, that's being dangled. So hence my title, Cocaine and Carrot Juice. I'm, I'm 
trying to wrap up this corruption with. I like know, it. I like every, it. Everyone I've, I've brought the title up to says, "Holy shit, that's the greatest movie title I've ever heard." So I think I'm on to something. I've got a great. Ca- I've yeah. got a great cast. I'd love to talk to you about it further if you're interested uh, and, and share sure. share the script with you. Um, yeah, I'm really, really uh, excited about it. But it's I'm not expecting uh, obviously any studio involvement. I'm not. I'm on the contrary. This will, it'll it'll definitely be done with. Uh, you know, grassroots money, and um, you know, even though I'm going to be moving the, the bigger sandbox from from uh, ideally a hundred thousand closer to a million, I'll get it privately. All right, the business Hollywood. Uh, what's your opinion? Is it going to last? Here's what's never going to go away: quality storytelling and the need to tell those stories with actors, a director. Um, we're, we're probably going to continue to use cameras and microphones. So if that's if that's not going to go away anytime soon, obviously, right? That storytelling is is what connects everyone. It's it's really the fabric of society in so many ways in terms of sharing ideals and values and phobias and fetishes. It is ultimately the way to do that. Is Hollywood going to exist as the place where if, in other words, if you're if you're going to do stage work and you really want the penultimate of stage work, you do have to go to Broadway. That's That hasn't changed yet either, right? Broadway is still where that is happening. So do you have to go to Hollywood to make it in films? Clearly not. It depends on what your, it really does depend on what your definition of making it is and what your, what the definition is for your aspirations of your career. If you want to break into network television, which seemingly is kind of hanging on by its, uh, by its last couple of uh, fingernails on the cliff, uh, the network television, you pretty much need to be in Los Angeles. There's a big machine at work. And ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox are still mostly here. They're not in Atlanta. That's that's where FX and different different to you know USA Network and Hallmark movies are made here and and uh, Showtime, you know, whatever. But Hollywood still controls network television and the studio system. So to make things happen within that, if that's part of the your de- definition of making it as a, as an artist then Hollywood is going to hang around uh, for a long time because it still has the infrastructure and is the best way to make big stories. Like, in other words, I don't know how Baz Luhrmann would have made Elvis if he did, if the Hollywood structure wasn't in place. Could he have done that outsider as yeah. an outsider in Australia and just kind of pieced it all together? Or does to make a film like Elvis, do you still need the bells and whistles of a Hollywood studio? And I think the answer is yes. And thankfully, they're still making big movies like Elvis because it's a spectacular smorgasbord of, of imagery and, and storytelling. Now, you're you're obviously very familiar with Easy Rider. Yep, yep, big time. And Easy yeah. Rider was the first real serious indif- independent film. Yeah. Um, and it was a big moment. It was a big moment for the industry because it was like a new scary thing had emerged. Yeah. The, the second big moment... And I was told this by the general counsel for Paramount Pictures about 15 years ago, was The Passion of the Christ. Wow. Yeah. Mon- um, Monster, which, Jim Caviezel, Mel Gibson. Because of, of how much money it made independently, released independently through his releasing company, everything destroyed the Hollywood model, totally destroyed it and showed with one very, very familiar story with a huge built-in audience. Uh, that it can be done. Mm-hmm. And so when you say that Hollywood's going to be around for a long time, I, I totally agree with that. But 
Bob Iger had a, a nice article out today or an interview where he basically predicted the collapse of show business starting with television and then all that will remain is a much more scaled down scared industry that doesn't have the global reach that it once had. Do you not agree with Absolutely. that? Absolutely, and that's what I mean by the networks hanging on by their fingernails. I don't. I don't. I, I'm just really, to be honest, it's surprising to me that ABC, NBC, CBS, other than the fact that they have tentacles that have gone out and created subsidiaries, right? But the, the right. fact that network television that shows like NCIS and these these shows that it's I'm not. This is not a condemnation at all of the storytelling, but it's different. They they play. They still play by these archaic rules of you know the the FCC and, and language and nudity. And I don't know how they even can compete with. I mean, Sopranos was a game changer, right? HBO Sopranos was yeah. a game changer. Language nudity. Every every other scene was in a strip bar. And now the networks are trying to compete with that. And I guess it's because they do have the demographics of an older audience, but that demographics is not going to be around much longer. People that people right. that rely on ABC, NBC, CBS for their programming, you know, they've got another fifteen years, maybe twenty years of that at the most. So, which means the trend says they're going to have to get out even sooner. So, I see a collapse of the network conglomeration of owning that big grip on television changing, and it already has with all the streaming platforms. The studio system, I think, is still uh, set up so that it um, it can furnish. Uh, cultivate and nurture big projects, a Spielberg production. Uh, but having said that, Mike, I think you're right. It, it can be done elsewhere. You don't need you don't need the the, the sanctioning or the the, uh, the stamp of approval from Warner Brothers or Universal or Paramount. Um, maybe maybe they'll they'll cling on romantically a little bit longer than they should have, just because of prestige and people and and a lot of filmmakers in particular still want to. Look for that kind of stamp of approval that they that they that they worked with the studio, but I don't think necessity. If we're talking ultimately necessity, no, the necessity is ne- is not really baked into the re- into the cake anymore. Does that make sense? What's stopping you from taking advantage of all those skills and for almost next to nothing, making a one location buddy comedy like The Odd Couple, and monetizing it and streaming it on a YouTube channel? Uh, as if it were like a TV show, something that's good. Yes. Well, I did. I did my own. Uh, I did a, a, a web series a couple years ago that I thought was very fresh. It was a little three-minute installments called the The Adventures of Hollywood and Vine. And remember when Vines first came out? Remember Vines? Yes. What like seven seconds was the criteria for a Vine? Yes, I remember yeah. that. So Holly. It's so weird. A Vine and forever. Yeah. So, and I wrote the script at that time, and the Adventures of Hollywood and Vine. And Hollywood was an old guy, an older actor, older as in forty, who's still going to audition for uh, NCIS and for Grey's Anatomy. Right. He's doing the old thing, and he's got people coming over to his house to run lines with him, and he's an actor. And his roommates, this this kid from from Carlsbad, who plays guitar and looks kind of like Jim Morrison, and just falls out of bed and has success on the internet, and he and that's Vine. So the adventures of Hollywood and Vine, and it was just the clashing of these an older actor in his 40s doing it the old way and this young kid working well in the social media world. And I just did a little three-and-a-half-minute episodes, and it was very funny. I didn't know how to find an audience for it. We made, I think, seven episodes. I thought each of them stood alone. I thought they were very... I enjoy, enjoyed the hell out of them. I wouldn't know, I wouldn't know how to monetize it for sure. To, to me, it sounds amazing, uh, but I will tell you, and this is just the cold hard mm-hmm. facts, is the people who are in the movie business like movies about the movie business more than people who are not in the movie <laughs> yeah. business. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, that's just a fact yeah. because everybody's like, we should tell a story about Hollywood. Yeah. And uh, most people are just like, they don't even want it. They don't even care. But in the, there, there's, um, there's so many great movies about, about movie making. I'm sure you have your list. But my, I mean, my favorite is it's either The Big Picture with Kevin Bacon. Just watched it. Um, which is the world I totally yeah. went through and experienced, or it's the player yeah. because I also experienced the world of the player like directly. That opening montage yeah. that was my life for a couple of years, and I I miss that Hollywood. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore my, in that way. Yeah, my favorite Altman film, that and Gosford Park, I think are his, are his two of his two of his best films. And the player's genius. I'm sure you've seen Living in Oblivion. Tom DeCillo is hilarious. Love it. Yeah, Love it. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I tapped out of of indie films probably 10, 15 yeah. years ago when my when my daughter was born, when everything just started to get really, really boring. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I correlate it to the shooting gallery, which started. And this is, you know, I would caution you because you did such a good job at a small scale. I would caution you from going too far up the budget, yeah. even if the money is there, is the shooting gallery, Larry Maestrich, innovative deals, 50% to the filmmakers, 50% to the talent, Pieces of April, they made, they, everything was under a million dollars. Then they had this gigantic hit with You Can Count on Me. And then they started to make $10 million movies, and then they were out of business. Yeah, that's a great movie, though. It's a really good film. I loved You Can Count on but, Me. But it wasn't a $10 million no, film. No, no. It, it was the $1 million movie that you're going to try and make with yeah. uh, carrots and yeah. carrot juice and cocaine. Yeah. That's that's great. Um, um, what's I going to say? No, I, I will I won't lose my my auto, autonomy or my sensibilities or my understanding and appreciation of uh, what's most important. What's most important? Most important is that the actors are prepared. That that, that the setting is right. That that you understand where every where every scene belongs in your narrative arc, so that every scene has a complete and total understanding of why it is what it is, and what 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 are we moving forward with this scene, and what's the tone and temperature of the scene. That all the actors and everyone behind the camera also is engaged and is on, totally in the same emotional place, scene by scene. And then uh, you don't have a lot of fat on the skeleton that way. You don't have a lot of things that you're, you know, I, I shot film. I, the first few projects that I had, Mike, I shot 35. So I understand what it's like to be working with short ends. People don't even remember what short ends check are. Check the gate. Check it, yeah, checking the gate with those. I miss those words so much. What I don't miss was rolling out on short, a short end that you thought, you know, you bought a short end that was a 200, and it's in, unscientific because the DPs just take it on a big projects. People don't even know what short ends are anymore, but those big mags of film, right? If, if it was a 400, that means it's basically four minutes of film. But on a big film, when that gets down, 400 could be down to 130. The DPs is going to say, "Let's change it out because I don't want to. I don't want to run out on the next one. Put a new 400 in there." So now the DP is going to he's going to kind of mark a number on it, and they're going to call it a 200, and they're going to sell it to a guy like me. And it's really got 130 on it, so it doesn't have two minutes on it. It's really got about you know barely a minute and a half on it. I bought it thinking it's a 200. I've got that mag on there, and that rolls out very early. So making films on short ends was a beast, but it teaches you to really uh, be prepared to not do what digital, the trap of digital for filmmakers is just to shoot endless takes. Well, yeah. absolutely, yeah. and that not only is it the trap, and, and that brings me back to my love of Frank Capra. Mm -hmm. Like He had to move a big, giant camera. There, yeah. A lot of thought had to go into, why am I filming this? Yeah. And, you know, because it's costing a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, I, and I did fall out of love with the indie world as soon as they producers figured out that they can just force you to get as much footage and then they can override your editing. Yeah. And, you know, it's just if you can't 
constrain the producers with a shot list that is hard to pull off, then they got you. Oh, totally. And that's television. And I would love to direct TV. Don't get me wrong. I would love to be considered to direct an episode of Peaky Blinders or Ozark or, you know, you know, severance. I would love that. But when you work for television, you have a demand of shot list. You, there, you have to deliver coverage, right? You have to execute. You, well, you have to, well, you have to, you have to execute, you have to make your day and your coverage is your yeah. coverage. You can't say, well, I only, I, I know I'm only going to use this in the master. So I didn't shoot any coverage. <laughs> Excuse me. You know, that, yeah. that's not acceptable at television. You got to deliver two shots, singles, masters, over the shoulders, all that stuff. For instance, Rosebud Lane, the scene in the kitchen when they come in from the first walk that they take, and she says, so how did it go? Great. You want to stay for dinner? He says, no. She says, do you have any plans I should know about? He says, well, I think I'll take him for a drive in the mountains. And she says, oh, which mountains? And he doesn't know how to answer because there's so many. Do you remember the scene? Right. I do yeah. remember the scene because one mountain is very, very dangerous, and they shouldn't go there. Yeah, and, she, and she, so he says, okay, I guess I'll take him to the movies. So that was the punchline to the scene. But I don't, I don't need coverage on that scene. I don't need co- yeah. I don't need coverage. I need the two of them standing at opposite ends of the kitchen. I don't need to get in there and cover that. I don't. I wouldn't have that luxury working for someone else. I would. I would I, I, well, less less really is more in my opinion. Yeah. And you'll find it funny, but Joel Schumacher was like, "Less is not more. Less is less." That was his attitude. Well, but you guys were going for you guys were going for almost a documentary thing where the, you guys were crossing lines and and, and going well, yeah, doing all sorts of. Maddie Libatique ran around with the camera on his shoulder and shot that as he yeah. turned. That's what he did. So, and, but I'm just saying. Yeah. Joel's vibe was always that less is not more, less is less, which I never agreed with yeah. ever. Um, and and I think you are more of the school that less is more. Well, it, because you got more out of less in your film. Yeah, absolutely. But it's it, again, it's it's also knowing it's a singular vision. I knew what I wanted. I knew exactly what I'd seen. I'd seen the scene in my head over and over again. I know yeah. exactly what the scene looks like. Back to your point, though, of of having to de- to deliver all this stuff. Uh, and and if you have so much, if you shoot so much, then the filmmaker's screwing himself, and you're leaving yourself to the whim of the editor or someone else that might have uh, any any sense of creative input in post production. If I deliver so much, then someone can say, "Well, I want here's how I here's how I think it should be done," and you could be overridden, right? But if you don't shoot it, they don't have it. Well, you're a fan of Walter Murch, right? Of course, yeah. So the film is written three times yeah, yeah. by the writer. Yeah. By the director yeah. and the cast, yeah, exactly. and then by the editor. Exactly. Well, that, that's and if you give the editor too much footage, yeah. he's the final writer. Exactly. And you have to rewrite the whole damn thing with whatever the producer tells him. So it's a trap. It is a trap. And like they say, you know, actors actors think filmmaking is an actor's medium. Directors think it's a director's medium. Editors know it's an editor's medium. Yeah, and and producers want it to be a money printing medium, so, without a doubt. And that's and that's I, I I I've never been motivated by that. I've never. Uh, well, you're definitely you're definitely a sincere, real guy, and I know they're drilling. And I'm not going to cut this out. I'm just going to keep talking yeah. to you. Um, that this your your Hollywood mansion is being worked on. Yes. I can see yes. I can see the gold plated sure. stuff being installed yeah. behind you. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's important to me is that you guys like you, whether it's you or not, can can begin to carve a living out of this exclusively outside of the system. And I think that's scaling down the the dream a little bit, where it's like, yeah, we would all like to be given $70 million, make Avatar 3 and, you know, be paraded around and do the premieres and fly on the jets. But for the majority of us who can rescue the American culture through good storytelling, we need to scale it down and 
go for a smaller win that's realistic. Yeah. And I think you have that skill set. And whether whether or not you're going to go down that road in your life, it doesn't matter. I, I encourage my audience members to, to go and find the movie Rosebud and watch it for the execution at the budget level to be inspired by you to see what can be done. Because you're really... I mean, you're distributing it through Amazon, correct? Uh, yes, so we have domestic distribution with a company called Good Deed Entertainment, and the target right now is Amazon, and the tentative release date is October 7th, uh, but they're open to a wide variety of streaming platforms, but Amazon is, is where we're launching. Yeah. So, so you'll it'll be out there. People can see it. Correct. You'll you've monetized it in some way. You're not losing. It's gonna it's gonna have its life, and over time, it's gonna be okay. Yes. Well, all I'm trying to say is what's important to me is that people understand the message of this podcast is replicate your business model on their own work yeah. and and don't try to make it into the Hollywood system because I think the Hollywood system then will will have to change to draw people like you back into it because right now all they have to do is open up any newspaper and they're like screenwriting contest people take the best thing they ever wrote and they'll just send it yeah um, and hopes of being discovered because they don't know there's a system yeah. and that you can actually navigate it differently. And that's all. I just want to focus on that because you really did it. Well, like I, I, I would love to have done what you did. I would love to take my little screenplay and for $100,000 go direct it and then just not lose the money, right? Just get a little yeah. bit of the money back and have enough to live and maybe do another one. To me, that's, that's the new making it. Yeah, well, that's that's where I'm at. I mean, it's you got to you got to be willing to carry a little bit of debt for a while. But uh, you know, it's when you're an artist, it's uh, that, that isn't motivated necessarily by by the money. Then uh, you have that luxury. I've also had a successful career as an actor, so I have I have a little bit of a of a, of a, a buffer zone so that I can kind of keep my stuff going between my acting, teaching, my studio, and whatnot. But I appreciate the the acknowledgement of the film. Rosebud Lane was made by by people who really care about the project. I developed it with them for a long time. We put a lot of thought and energy into it. Everyone that came on board had enthusiasm for the story, uh, fell in love with the characters, and uh, we were all pulling in the same direction, and that's huge. I I would uh, uh, warn people out there that have their own projects um, of, of... and you're saying don't go the Hollywood way, don't go the studio route. First of all, it's very hard to do that. It's very hard to break into that world in terms of even getting someone to read a script to then option it. I mean, you really do. You need a lit agent. You need all sorts of things if you don't have some kind of personal connection. But breaking into the system is easier said than done. So then let's say you're going to try to make your own project. Be very realistic and write write something that you can shoot, like you're saying. Write something that takes place in one location. Make something that's very uh, bite-sized in terms of aspirational for your for what could be a realistic budget, and then have a budget level that you could cobble together through friends and family. What I often run into right. with people is they have a film idea, and they say, "No, I couldn't do this for less than two million." I, right off the bat, I go, "Then you are never going to get it done. Two million dollars yeah. is a lot of money. I don't know where you think you're going to get two million dollars. You haven't made a film before." Well, I've got attachments, you know, then I always go through the things of, of what you hear people say. I've got so-and-so attached, and I'll hear that say, that person means nothing in the marketplace. You haven't done your research. That's your favorite actor, but that person means nothing. And if you can go and get the money, then you'll prove to me, well, they meant something to these investors. But you need to stay uh, intimate, kind of a, like a little cottage industry, and make something that you can afford to make just through friends and family, whatever that number is, and make a film for that. That's doable. So, 
It is doable, and I think that's great advice that anybody who's wise would would heed and and uh, and dwell on a little bit. All right, so I'm I'm a writer. I make stuff. You make stuff. I don't do criticism where I'm criticizing someone's work. I'm always the kind of guy who's trying to see the best in someone's work. Um, so I want to get a little critical about your film with some questions. Okay. Not not that I feel like slighted or why didn't you do it this way, but did you consider certain sure. angles and certain things? And so the one big walk away that I have, the lingering feeling about your film is uh, it's clear you love movies. It's clear with all the references that were in there that the characters are embodying that passion of movies as a way to kind of see the world and understand the world and communicate with one another. But I didn't feel, and this is not a criticism because it's so hard to do what you do. I want everyone listening to know it's very fucking hard to write, direct, produce, cohesively tell a story. It's hard, okay? So if it's that hard, I can't possibly criticize you. I can only tell you what I'm longing for. Sure. And I was Hit longing me. for that I was longing for that bubble to be broken. It's so surrounded by film that even in the end, when they're in Hollywood and they're driving, it, it gets even more enclosed. And I just wanted that bubble to be broken in some way, dramatically, without referencing film, with a real, just a real, I just feel like, did you explore it? Was it something you were interested in? I was longing for it. I'm not saying it's missing. Yeah. I'm not saying the movie is bad. I'm just saying, oh, man. I, you know how you turn off the show and you're like, ooh, that would have been... I, I wish they broke that bubble, the father and son. Mm. And maybe that's what the maybe that's what the sequel is. Yeah, well, yeah, I can't give you too much on the sequel yet because it's very much in the in the infancy stage. Um, n no, and I, I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around what you mean by break the bubble. And if you give me an example of where you th where you think it it could have kind of deviated or busted out of what you're calling an into kind of an intimate closure of it. Give me an example of what, what you mean. Well, well I, what I mean is the entire movie mm -hmm. is is wrapped mm -hmm. in uh, a love of movies. Mm -hmm. So much so that your protagonist mm -hmm. and his son mm -hmm. talk to each other through movies mm -hmm. almost all the time. Mm -hmm. And they don't ever go into a different space yeah. for very uh, that, yeah. that takes movies and puts them in their place. Mm -hmm which is on the shelf, mm -hmm. and the relationship is the most important thing. Well, the, 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 when they're sitting at the pond, I mean, he, he wraps it, he, he ends up wrapping it up. Well, I guess in the beginning, it, it is bookended with a reference to Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and that it's, it's wrapped up with a comparison between, you know, a movie that people love, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, but most people who love films of that era will say that they preferred things more lighthearted, like Rio Bravo. So it is wrapped up with that comparison. But the, the gist, the, 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 the nuts and bolts of that father-son scene there is him issuing... Uh, fatherly wisdom to him, saying it's time for you to be the man of the house. It's time for you to do the right thing for your mom. She needs you now more than ever. You're at an age now where she's going to need you to step up and take some control, take some uh, some um, not control, but some responsibility and accountability in this family of yours. And this is this is time for you to do that. And I know you have it in you. And then he brings it back to film. Is that what you're saying by bringing it back yes, to film? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I just wanted that bubble burst, yeah. and I just felt like, and again. Not a yeah. criticism, just, you know how your job as a storyteller is to make me long for things. Yeah. That's what I was, Interesting. that's what I was longing for. No, I, I guess, uh, I guess I thought I was having my cake and eating it too, by having it, 
where this is a father that is really genuinely saying the right things, and he doesn't. This is new terrain for him, right? Yeah. But he's well, you just can't help yourself. You love films, yeah, and you just can't help yourself. Well, Let's just admit it. Right, well, it's, 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 it's almost like a button. It's like oh, and while we're out, as we're walking away from the scene, it's kind of like you know, uh, the, you know, the man who shot Liberty Ballance. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but just think about it, you know, complete movie dialogue, the contest, with yeah. the, I mean, the, the game with the wife, it's just everywhere, and I just, you could have had, you could have just yeah. left them down yeah. as humans, that's all. Sure, uh, the, the confrontation with Boone, though, there's there's no references there, what I, what I hope that maybe people will get with the confrontation with Boone at the end. When 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 Sydney is approaching him in that in that dark uh, living room with the with the with the moonlight coming through the, the the blinds and Boone is definitely a menacing character sitting on the on the couch and Sydney has seen this movie before. I mean that's what I hope that the audience is going is oh Sydney's now walking into a movie that he's not really prepared for and it's a right. it's a direct link back to when they first were had their confrontation at the gas station and what does Sydney say to him you don't scare me and what does he say I should and then in that confrontation he says you're scaring me Boone it's like yes so that none of those are movie references but that's Sydney thinking like a movie at first he says you're like you said to his wife he's a Mark Twain bully I don't these are the kind of it's hard to be scared of like a Mark Twain bully they seem so archetypal they seem like you know what they're gonna do they're full of cliche so at first, well, I liked I, I liked the character Boone. He seemed like a hybrid of Boo Radley and Toomer. Oh, interesting! You didn't get any any sense of like uh, Lenny from a, a Mice and Men. But I love I love no. the Boo Radley though. That's great. I, I'm a huge I'm yeah. a huge Horton Foot fan. Huge yeah. huge yeah. Horton Foot. That's wow. Okay. Interesting, yeah. It, but you know, Tumor, the character Tumor yeah. from uh, the Great Santini. Oh, yeah, should, of course, Duvall. Who directed Great Santini again? Um. I need to add that. Not yeah, sure. I need to add that film to my library. I think it was a standalone. I don't think it was a notable director. I may be wrong, no, but that. God, that was, a, that was a disturbing film. Well, I mean, it's an actor's piece. That's the kind yeah. of movie you would make, to be honest with you. That's the kind of movie you would well, make. Well, so. thank you. And, and Tender Mercies was a huge influence, and the fact that we were able to get Tess Harper was just a coup because, uh, you know, the, one of the a couple of the first people that read uh, Rosebud Lane uh, compared it to Tender Mercies, and I thought that was a great compliment. Well, speaking of working with older actors, I do know that for a little while there, they were using cheesecloth yeah. over the camera when they were filming Robert Redford. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sybil Shepherd is notorious Just, for having a special lens for Sybil Shepherd. Cheesecloth. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so that's, that, that took his wrinkles away, I guess, in the 90s. Yeah. Well, listen, I've enjoyed talking to you, director, writer, producer. Thank you, Mike. Mr. John Lacey. Um, and... I like to have my guests for about an hour on my podcast because I try to keep it, you know, predictable for my audience. Um, yeah. When it's me, it's twenty minutes. When I have a guest, it's it's yeah. just uh, it's just an hour. Yeah. So I thought we had a really good conversation. I, I'm glad you came on this show with me to share some of your insight, some of your process, some of your thoughts about the business, and I, you know, I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. Oh, very much so. I, I, yeah, this is. Uh, we came together through a very good friend, Michael Broderick, and I knew immediately that this would be time well spent. And uh, uh, kudos to you for, for giving people like me a platform and a very thought-provoking conversation. Great questions, and uh, you're a very good listener. Well, thank you, and I look forward to deepening my relationship with you. I like your work, and, uh, and I just look forward to staying in touch and having you on the next time you want to talk about whatever film you're going to put out next. And, man... I want everybody to know as soon as we hang up, I'm texting you about 
cocaine and carrot juice. Yeah, uh, you're, 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 yeah we'll definitely talk about it. And for people that are interested in, in Rosebud Lane, our website is pretty uh, pretty comprehensive. We've got a good a, a trailer that's on there and some audience reaction clips, which I think is a cool marketing tool to get people watching. Is it RosebudLaneMovie.com? That's it. Thank you. RosebudLaneMovie.com. I think our website. And we just got into our 12th film festival. So I'm heading back to North Carolina the first week of October to sit on a Q&A panel for the Tryon International Film Festival. And nice. we, were, we were selected to actually lead off their, their festival. So it's a nice uh, feather in our cap, and uh, the, the word continues to spread. But it's, I think it is one of those small, independent, uh, word-of-mouth films, and uh, anything your audience can do to, to help promote and spread the word, I think uh, Rosebud Lane is, is worthy of an audience. So I appreciate the forum. I, I, I agree. I agree with what you just said. It's worthy of the audience, and I also think the audience should do themselves a favor and watch your movie and then watch Cinema Paradiso or in whatever order because that is you got me. I yeah. didn't catch that. Yeah. And I usually catch I usually catch these things yeah. and I did not catch that. But man, that is spot on. Yeah. So that's a good way to end this show with you making the American Cinema Paradiso, which I've always argued we need to make American foreign films and you did it. Congratulations. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you. All right, you have a great day, and I'll have this show out tomorrow, and I'll send you a link. I look forward to that. Thank you, brother. Hey, Hollywood, I'm here singing the blues. We lost someone, someone way too soon. And don't you say those words. All I want to do is hear me. Can you hear me? Don't you say those words. All I want to do is hear me. Can you hear me? Hey, Hollywood, I'm here singing the blues. We lost someone, someone way too soon. Say those words, all I do is wanna hear me. Can you hear me? And don't you say those words, all I do is wanna hear me. Can you hear me? And tell me you're alone with me. I mean too much, you just don't care.
Zoom. 